We're in the Gospel of John, and this comes from John chapter 4. You can follow along up here. If you have a Bible, then you can follow along there. Just so you know, um, we're reading from the English Standard Version. We're going to read from verses 1 to 30. It's a bit long, so um, uh, just be aware. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And then Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, and our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know, and for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ, and when He comes, He'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with the woman, but no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Amen. So we're going through a series on the Gospel of John. John is the fourth Gospel. Um, If you ever go into a Catholic cathedral, you notice that each Gospel has its own animal. The animal that represents John is the eagle because he is supposed to give the most heavenly perspective on who Jesus is. And with that, something that he does throughout his gospel is he tells us that throughout the world are all these little clues that reveal something deep and powerful about who Jesus is. Outside of this, I'm a teacher, and sometimes I teach different sections of the same class. So I'll be teaching one class, going over the answers to a test, 
and I'll leave them up on the board. That class leaves. The next class comes in, and they're there to take the same test. And you can always tell who's uh, honest because all the kids realize as they start looking around that the answers are on the board behind me, and then they start writing as fast as they can. And the most honest person will go, uh, <laughs> Dr. Kim, the answers are behind you. And then everyone goes, oh, I hate you. Why'd you do that? And then they start getting upset, right? The answers are hidden in plain sight. Uh, this is something that Renaissance artists used to do all the time. There's a 15th century Renaissance painter from the Netherlands named Jan van Eyck. And there's a portrait that he painted called the Arnolfini portrait. And if you look all the way against the back wall, he wrote in Latin, uh, Jan van Eyck was here. And that's not so um, great. But if you look even closer, there's a mirror, very small, hanging against the back wall. And in the mirror, he painted a little portrait of himself as a clue that he was the one who painted this picture. And the Gospel of John is the exact same way. Spread throughout the entire world in these things that we interact with all the time are these clues that reveal something deep and powerful about Jesus. Clues like bread, clues like light, and in this passage, clues like water. And you might think John 4 suddenly, all of a sudden, brings us water and we're supposed to go, oh, I get it. But he is slowly, slowly, slowly building us to this point. His first miracle, he transforms water into wine. In John chapter 3, when he meets with Nicodemus, he says, you will not enter the kingdom unless you have been born of the Spirit and of water. In the passage right before this, him and John the Baptist are at the Jordan River baptizing together because it says there was an abundance of water. Now, in our lives, we tend to take water for granted. You go into a restaurant, and the first thing they say to you when you sit down is, still sparkling or tap. I always get the tap. Uh, you go at your house, and you can get scalding hot water for your shower. You can get ice-cold water to close the pores on your face. You can get filtered water to drink. You can get a soda stream to get seltzer water to drink. And we don't really realize how scarce water is until something goes wrong. So even, for example, yesterday, uh, one of our uh, friend's mothers passed away, so we're getting ready for the funeral. It's early in the morning, and the water starts to go out, and we're like a morning version of Fred and Jen. Our hair is everywhere. I'm like, we can't go to a funeral like this. So we run into the bathroom as fast as we can, and then we try to take advantage of all the water that there is, and we barely like get the soap out of our hair. So water can be scarce when the building shuts off. Sometimes we experience artificial thirst, and this is kind of something that happens to us. You'll eat like pizza late at night, and this salty food gets into your system, and then you go, it was so worth it. You go to sleep, and then at like 4 o'clock in the morning, you wake up, you're like, <laughs> your face is like twice the size. You're like, I need some water. Right? So you experience that thirst, and then you go, you drink this water, and you feel so wonderful. So even though water is something we kind of take for granted, for much of history, and even for a lot of the world, water is this scarce resource. It's unpredictable, and our relationship to water is something that's also fragile and unpredictable. In this chapter... John is using this basic fact of life, our relationship with water, to reveal something deep and powerful and exciting about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And that's what we're going to look at. So with that, let's pray, and then we'll go over this passage. <clears throat> Dear God, we come to you in this place, um, and we're just so excited because you clearly love your people, and you don't want us to do all these things things or jump through all these hoops, you're seeking us and you come to find us 
And when you come to find us, you pour out your blessing like a fountain in our lives. But sometimes we're not really ready to accept that. So what I pray is as we look at this passage and as we look at this woman, you'd open up our hearts so that we can experience all that you have to give us. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. So we started verses 1 to 6 with this background that the Jesus movement has been growing And because it's been growing, the religious authorities are starting to get a little bit jealous, a little bit suspicious, and a little bit hostile. So Jesus left Judea, which is in the south, and he's going back to his home country, which is Galilee in the north, leaving a land of hostility, going home where he should be welcomed. And in between is Samaria, and he has to stop in Samaria, and we're unsure of how the people in this area are going to react. Are they going to be hostile like Judea? Are they going to be welcoming him like in Galilee? Or are they going to be something else? When he gets there, it tells us that it's the sixth hour, which is about noon, which is the hottest time of the day. And Jesus had been traveling since morning, and he was traveling through the desert. So when he got there, he was thirsty. But his disciples had left him. He has nothing to get water with. So he's sitting there by this well, waiting for someone to come. This well still exists. It's in the West Bank. It's about 100 feet deep even to today. So you can't just go there and drink from it. And finally, this woman walks out with a jar, and Jesus is a little brusque, a little rude. No, please. No, hey, how are you? No, nice to meet you. He just says to this woman, give me a drink. And this woman responds understandably. And this is a bold move on Jesus' part, because when you share drinks together, you are crossing this barrier of I am me, you are you. You are starting to become we are together. I can always tell who's friends at school because Towards the end of the day, they go, hey, are you going to Starbucks? Hey, are you going to Starbucks? Hey, are you going to Starbucks? And they get these adult drinks that are filled with sugar, and they sit there at Starbucks. But they share a drink together. And the same thing happens even for today. We have a friend who met her husband because she was at a bar, and she bought her husband a drink, and then they fell in love, and then they got married. So when you share a drink together, you are saying, hey, um, Let's get to know each other. And this is not just um, true in modern society. This is true in the Bible. The well is a place where you go to meet somebody special. Isaac met his wife at a well. Moses met his wife at a well. Jacob met his wife at a well. It's a modern day um, coffee meets bagel or whatever. But you go there and the expectation is, oh, I am here to meet somebody. So Jesus is there. This woman approaches and this woman's probably like, oh, God, look at this creep sitting at the well. He's like, give me a drink. And he's like, she's like, oh. And she says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? You can tell she's bothered. You can tell she doesn't want to talk to him. You can tell she's slightly offended. But as they talk over the next 16 verses, Jesus is eventually able to win her over and reveal a deeper longing than a longing for water in her heart. The first part of the conversation, they are talking past each other. Jesus says, hey, give me a drink. She says, who do you think you are? He says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. And then she's like, well, why'd you ask me for a drink in the first place? You don't even have a jar. The thing is 100 feet deep. How are you going to get water? Do you think you're greater than Jacob? And then he says, the water I give you will be living water. And if you drink this water, you will never thirst again. And as I mentioned, this woman, you can tell, is bothered by Jesus. She keeps questioning him with every response. Who do you think you are? Are you greater than Jacob? You don't have anything to draw it with. But the moment that Jesus says, the water 
I will give you, if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. The conversation stops going past each other, and they meet. And suddenly she hears this offer, and she says, if this is true, I want this. And then in verse 14, she says to him, where is this water? I want this water so that if you can give it to me, I will never be thirsty again. And you get a clue at the end of it. She says, so I'll never have to come back to this well to draw water again. What is this woman so afraid of? Why is she the only person out here at the hottest part of the day when nobody else is there to get water? Who is she avoiding? She's stuck because she needs water, and you can only get water in this public place, but she wants to avoid all the people that usually come here. Now, this sometimes happens in like a, a cramped New York apartment. You're with your family, whoever. You get in a fight with somebody, whoever, your spouse or your kid or whatever. You go into another room, you're like, boom! And then you realize, oh, I forgot my phone <laughs> in the other room where that person is. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to wait and see if they go somewhere else so that I can get it. Because you don't want to talk to them. And then you listen by the door. Yeah, okay, I think they're gone. You walk out, you see them sitting right there, and then you just run back in, right? So this woman is the same way. She needs this water, but she does not want to run into anybody along the way. So she decides, I'm just going to go out there at the heat of the day. And the reason we discover that she's so afraid of running to other people is something that Jesus points out. He changes topics and says, go call your husband out of nowhere. And this question catches the woman off guard, and she says, I don't have a husband. And she goes, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the person you're living with now is also not your husband. In the modern day, we can kind of take so many different meanings from what this woman's relationship status is. But if you look at the divorce law at the time and the culture of divorce at the time, most likely it is the husband who has the authority to initiate divorce. What does that mean? That means five times in a row, somebody has wanted to be with her They've gotten to know her, and the more they got to know her, the less they liked her, and they left her. Now, after the first time, she might think, well, that's them, not me. After the second time, she goes, okay, maybe it's me. But after the fifth time, she begins to internalize this dynamic and go, there is something wrong with me. Why is it that the people that know me the best have always rejected me? Not only her husband's, but the people in the town probably knew this about her, and maybe they never even gave her a chance. But just the fact that she'd been married five times and divorced five times and is now living with this random guy, they were like, I don't want to know this person. And so she feels all these judging eyes on her everywhere that she goes. So she says, you know what, I'm just going to go at the middle of the day when nobody else is out there, get this water, sneak back into my house, and drink this thing because I need it. For her, she had structured her life so that she could minimize the amount of pain, the amount of rejection. And it's like that song by Simon and Garfunkel from the 1960s, I Am a Rock. I am an island. And one of the verses says, I've built these walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving. I disdain. This woman had made her life so isolated that she didn't realize how deep her thirst was. Her heart had become dry, brittle, cracked, and fragile. And until Jesus spoke with her, she didn't even realize that that was the thing that she was ultimately longing for, wanting to connect with other people. Now, whether we feel it or not, we are also in a season of loneliness. 
And this is not just me saying this. The Surgeon General recently said that the U.S. is going through an epidemic of loneliness and called it a public health crisis. The longer that we spend alone, we have worsening mental health and there's a rise in aggressive behavior as well as violent crimes. And this is just not anecdotal. There are many surveys that back this up. The Meta Gallup poll conducted across over 140 countries interviewing thousands of adults had noted that one out of four adults have reported feeling very lonely or fairly lonely, and this skews younger. There is something called the time, American Time Use Survey that ta- tracks the amount of time we spend doing certain things every week. In 2013, we used to spend seven hours with our friends per week and 15 hours with just random people that we were connected with. That's about 22 hours a week. In the last 10 years, that number, 22, has dropped to 13 hours. And what have we replaced it with? We've replaced it with spending time alone. And it's more pronounced in young people, people that are 20 and younger. And of course, we can all point to the reasons for this, the rise in technology, the rise in COVID. But we don't have to say these facts to know that this is true. We know this is true just anecdotally. The people that we should be closest to are oftentimes the people we feel the most distant to, the most misunderstood by, the most disconnected to. So when we go home, we should be there for the people in our house. But our drive is, I just need to be alone for a couple of minutes. I just need to be alone for a while. I don't want to see them. But these are the people you should be spending your time with. So this whole situation is something that we're experiencing too. There is a drive. There is a longing to be connected with people. Water is everywhere, but relationships are starting to become scarce. And like a well, this woman's longing for connection extends beyond even human relationships, but goes to her relationship with God. In verses 19 and 20, after Jesus reveals he knows every single detail about this woman's life, she says, I know that you're a prophet, but Jews say that Samaritans are wrong in the way that they worship. We worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you say we must worship in Jerusalem. And to her, the Samaritans had been mistreated, and she had made worship a mountain. It's something that I have to climb every single day. And when I get to the top, somebody else is telling me this is not even the right mountain. Historically, Samaritans had been looked down upon. They were the lower class people who had been left in the land after the Assyrian conquest. They had intermarried with foreigners. And when the Jews returned from exile, they looked at these people and considered them to be half-breeds. They considered their worship to be garbage. And they looked down on every single thing that she did. She had this longing of course, to be known by people and to be accepted by people. But that longing goes even deeper. She wanted to be connected to God and she did everything that she could, but based on her race, based off of where she was born, based off of the tradition that she had inherited, people kept telling her that's not enough. And in her mind, God was never, ever going to accept her. So this woman is thirsty. She's coming to a well. But what she longs for is to be connected to people. And even deeper than that, she wants to know whether God will accept her or not. But at the end of this conversation, Jesus unlocks a reservoir and releases living water into this woman's life. At verse 22, he says, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will you worship, but the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And what this means is worship, coming to God, singing to God, giving your spirit to God is not 
climbing a mountain. It is not trying to jump through these hoops. It's not giving our best effort and praying that he'll accept them. God is saying, if you see who he is and you accept it by the power of the Spirit, then he will accept your worship no matter where you were born, no matter who your people are, no matter what you do, he will come and accept it. And the key word that lets this all loose comes in verse 23. Jesus says, the Father himself is seeking such worshipers to worship in spirit and truth. You don't have to do anything. He is coming to you. In the larger arc of John's story, Jesus left heaven, took on flesh, and wanted to be with people in darkness. And we see that in a microcosm in John chapter 4. He left the Jordan River, a land overflowing with water, to come into a desert, became thirsty, to give this woman who is also thirsty living water. And the water comes forward in verse 25 and 26 when he says, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming and he will tell us all things. And he responds, I who speak to you am he. For the first time throughout the Gospel of John, he proclaims that he is the Messiah. And this is the exact right word from the exact right person at this time. It's like hearing the words, I love you, from the first time from your spouse. It's like the first time your kid says the word daddy. It's like the first time your dad says to you, I'm proud of you. This word goes deep into your heart and it allows you to experience something powerful. Jesus says all the things that you've longed for, that you've wanted for, the dry, brittle, cracked spirit that you carry around with you, I am seeking you out. I want you. I want the water to pour into your life. I am here for you. For the first time in a long time, this woman is face-to-face with somebody who knows her better than anybody else in the world. And rather than being rejected, he accepts her and says, you will worship me in spirit and truth. And like a drink of ice-cold water on a hot day, she is refreshed. And we see the effect of this living water immediately. In verse 28, she had come to this well to get water. She leaves her water jar without ever getting anything to drink. She runs to the people in the town that she had been avoiding for her entire life and says, come, I think I found the Messiah. He spends two days with them. At the end of that, she has a community around her, her worships God. Living water like a waterfall cascades from her desire to know God into her relationships, into her physical thirst, and all of a sudden she's able to flourish and living water that produces itself over and over again is now there. There's a Taoist philosopher named Lao Tzu who talks about the power of water, and he says this, Nothing is as soft or as yielding as, y- as water, yet for dissolving the hard and the inflexible, nothing can surpass this. Water is able to break the hardest stone, the hardest rock. And this Samaritan woman who went around saying, I am a rock, I am an island, Jesus, by just talking with her and spending time with her, is able to erode that away and allow her to experience true refreshing. Augustine said our hearts are restless until they find their rest with thee and we can try to fill this with all these lesser things and we try you know I'll watch another show I'll go to this other place I'll check out this other restaurant but until we get this thing right until we realize God is seeking you he wants to know you and the deeper he knows you he's going to keep accepting you the sooner we're able to do that 
the more quickly we're able to experience the power of living water. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Let's pray. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. And just like um, water is a symbol that teaches us about who Jesus is, so bread and wine are a symbol that show us what Jesus has done.